Sponsorship of the KQED live audio stream comes from Xfinity Mobile, featuring customized wireless plans. Customers can choose unlimited, buy the gig, shared data, or a mix of both and switch it up anytime. Learn more at XfinityMobile.com. From KQED in San Francisco, this is the Writer's Block. I'm Jeffrey Eugenides, and I'm reading a bit of my new novel, The Marriage Plot. Looking back, Madeline realized that her college love life had fallen short of expectations. Her freshman roommate, Jennifer Boomgard, had rushed off to health services the first week of school to be fitted for a diaphragm. Unaccustomed to sharing a room with anybody, much less a stranger, Madeline felt that Jenny was a little too quick with her intimacies. She didn't want to be shown Jennifer's diaphragm, which reminded her of an uncooked ravioli. And she certainly didn't want to feel the spermicidal jelly that Jenny offered to squirt into her palm. Madeline was shocked when Jennifer started going to parties with the diaphragm already in place, when she wore it to the Harvard-Brown game, and when she left it one morning on top of their miniature fridge. That winter, when the Reverend Desmond Tutu came to campus for an anti-apartheid rally, Madeline asked Jennifer on their way to see the great cleric, Did you put your diaphragm in? They lived the next four months in an 18-by-15 room without speaking to each other. Though Madeline hadn't arrived at college sexually inexperienced, her freshman learning curve resembled a flat line. Aside from one makeout session with a Uruguayan named Carlos, a sandal-wearing engineering student who in low light looked like Che Guevara, the only boy she'd fooled around with was a high school senior visiting campus for early action weekend. She found Tim standing in line at the ratty, pushing his cafeteria tray along the metal track and visibly quivering. His blue blazer was too big for him. He'd spent the entire day wandering around campus with no one speaking to him. Now he was starving and wasn't sure if he was allowed to eat in the cafeteria or not. Tim seemed to be the only person at Brown more lost than Madeline. She helped him negotiate the ratty and afterward took him on a tour of the university. Finally, around 10.30 that night, they ended up back in Madeline's dorm room. Tim had the long-lashed eyes and pretty features of an expensive Bavarian doll, a little prince or yodeling shepherd boy. His blue blazer was on the floor and Madeline's shirt unbuttoned when Jennifer Boomgard came through the door. Oh, she said, sorry, and proceeded to stand there, smiling at the floor as if already relishing how this juicy bit of gossip would play along the hall. When she finally did leave, Madeline sat up and readjusted her clothes, and Tim picked up his blazer and went back to high school. At Christmas, when Madeline went home for vacation, she thought the scale in her parents' bathroom was broken. She got off to recalibrate the dial and got back on, whereupon the scale again registered the same weight. Stepping in front of the mirror, Madeline encountered a worried chipmunk staring back. Am I not getting asked out because I'm fat, the chipmunk said, or am I fat because I'm not getting asked out? I never got the freshman 15, her sister gloated when Madeline came down to breakfast. But I didn't pick out like all of my friends did. Accustomed to Alwyn's teasing, Madeline paid no attention, quietly slicing and eating the first of the 57 grapefruits she subsisted on until New Year's. Dieting fooled you into thinking 
you could control your life. By January, Madeline was down five pounds, and by the time squash season ended, she was back in great shape. And still she didn't meet anyone she liked. The boys at college seemed either incredibly immature or prematurely middle-aged, bearded like therapists, warming brandy snifters over candles while listening to Coltrane's A Love Supreme. It wasn't until her junior year that Madeline had a serious boyfriend. Billy Bainbridge was the son of Dorothy Bainbridge, whose uncle owned a third of the newspapers in the United States. Billy had flushed cheeks, blonde curls, and a scar on his right temple that made him even more adorable than he already was. He was soft-spoken and nice-smelling, like ivory soap. Naked, his body was nearly hairless. Billy didn't like to talk about his family. Madeline took this as a sign of good breeding. Billy was a legacy at Brown and sometimes worried that he wouldn't have gotten in on his own. Sex with Billy was cozy. It was snuggly. It was perfectly fine. He wanted to be a filmmaker. The one film he made for advanced filmmaking, however, was a violent, unbroken twelve minutes of Billy throwing fecal-looking brownie mix at the camera. Madeline began to wonder if there was a reason he never talked about his family. One thing he did talk about, however, with increasing intensity, was circumcision. Billy had read an article in an alternative health magazine that argued against the practice, and it made a big impression on him. Pretty weird thing to do to a baby, he said. What's so different about a tribe in, like, Papua New Guinea putting bones through their noses and cutting off a baby's foreskin? A bone through the nose is a lot less invasive. Madeline listened, trying to look sympathetic and hoped Billy would drop the subject. But as the weeks passed, he kept returning to it. The doctors just do it automatically in this country, he said. They didn't ask my parents. It's not like I'm Jewish or anything. He derided justifications on the basis of health or hygiene. Maybe that made sense 3,000 years ago out in the desert when you couldn't take a shower. But now? One night, as they were lying in bed, naked, Madeline noticed Billy examining his penis, stretching it. What are you doing? she asked. I'm looking for the scar, he said somberly. He interrogated his European friends, Henrik the Intact, Olivier the Foreskinned, asking, but does it feel super sensitive? Billy was convinced that he'd been deprived of sensation. Madeline tried not to take this personally. Plus, there were other problems with their relationship by then. Billy had a habit of staring deeply into Madeline's eyes in a way that was somehow controlling. His roommate situation was odd. He lived off campus with an attractive, muscular girl named Kyle, who was sleeping with at least three people, including Fatima Shirazi, a niece of the Shah of Iran. On the wall of his living room, Billy had painted the words, Kill the Father. Killing the Father was what, in Billy's opinion, college was all about. Who's your father? he asked Madeline. Is it Virginia Woolf? Is it Sontag? In my case, Madeline said, my father really is my father. Then you have to kill him. Who's your father? Godard, he said. Billy talked about renting a house in Guanajuato with Madeline over the summer. He said she could write a novel while he made a film. His faith in her, in her writing, even though she hardly wrote any fiction, made Madeline feel so good that she started going along with the idea. And then one day she came up onto Billy's front porch and was about to rap on his window, 
when something told her to look in the window instead. In the storm-tossed bed, Billy lay curled, John Lennon-style, against the spread-eagled Kyle. Both were naked. A second later, in a puff of smoke, Fatima materialized, also naked, shaking baby powder over her gleaming Persian skin. She smiled at her bedmates, her teeth seed-like in purple royal gums. Madeline's next boyfriend wasn't strictly her fault. She would never have met Dabney Carlyle if she hadn't taken an acting class, and she would never have taken an acting class if it hadn't been for her mother. At the first meeting of acting workshop, Professor Churchill, a bald bullfrog of a man, asked the students to say something about themselves. Half the people in class were theater majors, serious about acting or directing. Madeline mumbled something about loving Shakespeare and Eugene O'Neill. Dabney Carlyle stood up and said, I've done a little modeling work down in New York. My agent suggested I should take some acting lessons, so here I am. The modeling he'd done consisted of a single magazine ad showing a group of Laney Riefenstahlish athletes in boxer briefs, standing in a receding line on a beach whose black volcanic sand steamed around their marble feet. Madeline didn't see the photograph until she and Dabney were already going out when Dabney gingerly took it out of the bartending manual where he kept it safely pressed. She was inclined to make fun of it, but something reverential in Dabney's expression stopped her. And so she asked where the beach had been, Montauk, and why it was so black. It wasn't. And how much he'd gotten paid, four figures, and what the other guys were like, total a-holes, and if he was wearing the underpants right now. It was sometimes difficult with boys to take an interest in the things that interested them. But with Dabney, she wished it had been curling. She longed for it to be the model UN, anything but male modeling. This, anyway, was the authentic emotion she now identified herself as having felt. At the time, Dabney cautioned her against touching the ad before he got it laminated. Madeline had rehearsed in her mind the standard arguments— that though objectification was de facto bad, the emergence of the idealized male form in the mass media scored a point for equality. That if men started getting objectified and started worrying about their looks and their bodies, they might begin to understand the burden women had been living with since forever, and might therefore be sensitized to these issues of the body. She even went so far as to admire Dabney for his courage in allowing himself to be photographed in snug little gray underpants. Looking the way Madeline and Dabney did, it was inevitable that they would be cast as romantic leads in the scenes the workshop performed. Madeline was Rosalind to Dabney's wooden Orlando, Maggie to his brick-like brick and cat in a hot tin roof. To rehearse the first time, they met at Dabney's fraternity house. Merely stepping through the front door reinforced Madeline's aversions to places like Sigma Chi. It was around ten on Sunday morning. The vestiges of the previous evening's Hawaiian night were still there to see, the lay hanging from the antlers of the moose head on the wall, the plastic grass skirt trampled on the beer-sodden floor, a skirt that, should Madeline succumb to the outrageous good looks of Daphne Carlyle, she might, at a minimum, have to watch some drunken slut hula in to the baying of the brothers, or, at a maximum, for my ties made you do crazy things, might even don herself up in Dabney's room for his pleasure alone. On the low-slung couch, two Sigma Chi members were watching TV. 
At Madeline's appearance they stirred, rising out of the gloom like open-mouthed carp. She hurried to the back stairs, thinking the things she always thought when it came to frats and frat guys. That their appeal stemmed from a primitive need for protection. One thought of Neanderthal clans banding together against other Neanderthal clans. That the hazing the pledges underwent, being stripped and blindfolded and left in the lobby of the Biltmore Hotel with bus fare taped to their genitals, enacted the very fears of male rape and emasculation that membership in the fraternity promised protection against. That any guy who longed to join a frat suffered from insecurities that poisoned his relationships with women. That there was something seriously wrong with homophobic guys who centered their lives around a homoerotic bond that the stately mansions maintained by generations of dues-paying fraternity members were in reality sites for date rape and problem drinking, that frats always smelled bad, that you didn't ever want to shower in one, that only freshman girls were stupid enough to go to frat parties, that Kelly Traub had slept with a Sigma Delt guy who kept saying, now you see it, now you don't, now you see it, now you don't, that such a thing wasn't going to happen to her, to Madeline, ever. What she hadn't expected when it came to a fraternity was a sunny-haired, silent type like Dabney learning his lines in the folding chair, in parachute pants, shoeless. Looking back on their relationship, Madeline figured she'd had no choice. Dabney and she had been selected for each other in a royal wedding kind of way. She was Prince Charles to his Princess Di. She knew he couldn't act. Dabney had the artistic soul of a third-string tight end. In life, Dabney moved and said little. On stage, he moved not at all, but had to say a lot. His best dramatic moments came when the strain on his face from remembering his lines resembled the emotion he was trying to simulate. Acting opposite Dabney made Madeline more stiff and nervous than she already was. She wanted to do scenes with the talented kids in the workshop. She suggested interesting bits from the Vietnamization of New Jersey and Mammoth's sexual perversity in Chicago, but got no takers. Nobody wanted to lower his or her average by acting with her. Dabney didn't let it bother him. Bunch of little shits in that class, he said. They'll never get any print work, much less movies. He was more laconic than she liked her boyfriends to be. He had the wit of a store mannequin. But Dabney's physical perfection pushed these realities out of her mind. She'd never been in a relationship where she wasn't the more attractive partner. It was slightly intimidating, but she could handle it. At 3 a.m., while Dabney lay sleeping beside her, Madeline found she was up to the task of inventorying each abdominal cord, each hard lump of muscle. She enjoyed applying calipers to Dabney's waist to measure his body fat. Underwear modeling was all about the abs, Dabney said, and the abs were all about sit-ups and diet. The pleasure Madeline got from looking at Dabney was reminiscent of the pleasure she'd gotten as a girl from looking at sleek hunting dogs. Underneath this pleasure, like the coals that fed it, was a fierce need to enfold Dabney and siphon off his strength and beauty. It was all very primitive and evolutionary and felt fantastic. The problem was that she hadn't been able to allow herself to enjoy Dabney, or even to exploit him a little, but had had to go and be a total girl about it and convince herself that she was in love with him. Madeline required emotion, apparently. She disapproved of the idea of meaningless, extremely satisfying sex. And so she began to tell herself that Dabney's acting was restrained or economical.
She appreciated that Dabney was secure about himself and didn't need to prove anything and wasn't a show-off. Instead of worrying that he was dull, Madeline decided he was gentle. Instead of thinking he was poorly read, she called him intuitive. She exaggerated Dabney's mental abilities in order not to feel shallow for wanting his body. To this end, she helped Dabney write, okay, she wrote, English and anthro papers for him, and, when he got A's, felt confirmed of his intelligence. She sent him off to modeling auditions in New York with good luck kisses and listened to him complain bitterly about the faggots who hadn't hired his services. It turned out that Dabney wasn't so beautiful. Among the truly beautiful, he was only so-so. He couldn't even smile right. At the end of the semester, the acting students met separately with the professor for a critical review. Churchill welcomed Madeline with a wolfish yellow grin, then sat back jowly and deliberate in his chair. "'I've enjoyed having you in the class, Madeline,' he said, "'but you can't act.' "'Don't hold back,' Madeline said, chastened but laughing. "'Give it to me straight.' "'You have a good feel for language, for Shakespeare especially,' But your voice is reedy and you look worried on stage. Your forehead is a perpetual crease. A vocal coach could go a long way toward helping your instrument, but I worry about your worrying. You've got it right now, the crease. It's called thinking, Madeline said, which is fine if you're playing Eleanor Roosevelt or Golda Meir, but those parts don't come around very often. Churchill, steepling his fingers, continued, I'd be more diplomatic if I thought this meant a lot to you, but I get the feeling you don't want to be a professional actress, do you? No, Madeline said. Good. You're lovely. You're bright. The world is your oyster. Go with my blessings. When Dabney returned from his review with Churchill, he looked even more self-contented than usual. So, Madeline asked, how did it go? He says I'm perfect for soaps. Soap commercials? Dabney looked peeved. Days of our lives, General Hospital, ever heard of those? Did he mean that as a compliment? How else could he mean it? Soap actors have it made. They work every day, make great money, and never have to travel. I've been wasting my time trying to get all this advertising work. Screw that. I'm going to tell my agent to start lining up some auditions for soaps. Madeline was silent at this news. She'd assumed Dabney's enthusiasm for modeling was temporary, a tuition-earning scheme. Now she realized he was in earnest. She was, in fact, dating a model. What are you thinking? Dabney asked her. Nothing. Tell me. Just that, I don't know, but I doubt Professor Churchill has that high of an opinion of the acting on Days of Our Lives. What did he tell us the first class? He said he was giving a workshop in acting for people who wanted to work in the theater. In the theater doesn't mean, what did he tell you? Did he say you were going to be a movie star? He told me I couldn't act, Madeline said. He did, huh? Dabney put his hands in his pockets, leaning back on his heels as if relieved not to have to deliver this verdict himself. Is that why you're so pissed off and have to tear down my crit? I'm not tearing down your crit. I'm just not sure you got Churchill's meaning exactly. Dabney let out a bitter laugh. I wouldn't get it right, would I? I'm too dumb. I'm just some dumb jock you have to write English papers for. I don't know. You seem to have a pretty good grasp on sarcasm. Man, am I ever lucky, Dabney said. What would I do if you weren't around? You have to catch all the subtleties for me, don't you? You and your flair for catching subtleties. It must be nice to be rich and sit around all day catching subtleties. What do you know about needing to make a living? 
It's fine for you to make fun of my ad. You didn't get into college on a football scholarship. And now you have to come in here and run me down. You know what? This is bullshit. This is total bullshit. I'm sick of your condescension and your superiority complex. And Churchill's right. You can't act. In the end, Madeline had to admit that Dabney was far more fluent than she'd ever expected. He was capable of portraying a range of emotions, too. Anger, disgust, wounded pride, and of simulating others, including affection, passion, and love. He had a great career in the soaps ahead of him. To subscribe to the Writer's Block and hear more stories, visit kqed.org slash writersblock. The Writer's Block is produced by KQED.